one of my favorite tropes of analysis, the internet dark side analysis, right? Where suddenly um, a commentator is like, oh, fuck. The internet can be bad. And <laughs> what's going on here? And, um, you know, I, I think about, like, as you're talking about with the 9-11 rationales being justified to set up the surveillance state that then it realized was, you know, that some people maybe realized was not too great. The attempts to prevent a, quote, electronic Pearl Harbor leading to rollouts, uh, a rollbacks of government previously public information, of new surveillance rolled out by um, military operators, right? These critical reassessments, as she as she calls them, all center around this idea of, quote, bad people do bad things with technology and good people do good things with technology. And doing something that I think we've talked about a lot here in with Langdon's work and also with Chun's and that there's a there's a real thread of thought that like there's a there's a huge and this ties into the paranoia. There's this huge attempt to be like, well, you know, look, technology is neutral. Technology is truly neutral. And it really comes down to who's the individual that is using it and their intentions. That determines the outcome of the technology. And that feeds into a paranoid disposition where you're constantly othering, you're constantly projecting, you're constantly fragmenting, you know, in these psychoanalytic terms, constantly thinking about what the next threat is, who the next, um, you know, other that might use technology in one way to hurt you or isolate you or exclude you from that, that object of desire, that subject of interest that you have. You know, as she points out, the paranoia that drives the consumers or that is constructed to push consumers into the internet is also the paranoia that fuels uh, militaries, corporations, institutions with huge money and the actual ability to shape the internet to construct and redirect constructions of, you know, technologies that might feed into it, that might develop it, and also imaginations and political imaginations, cultural imaginations of what it is, right? By virtue of just thinking up or invoking this paranoia. Uh, you know, she writes, technologically speaking, paranoia is a valid information processing technique. Not only are paranoid interpretations correct, but a paranoid's obsession with meaning, his or her pull to the seemingly irre irrelevant terms, grounds prevention in the age of fiber optics. Automatic digital storage and networks enable a post-event traceability that buttresses prevention for a digital mass of information that can always be mined for warning signs re read in, but not read. Search terms only become self-evident after an event. Paranoia, inseparable from racial profiling, thus becomes a way of generating keywords in advance, a human response to an inhuman mass of information that belies rational analysis, which then kind of also loops back nicely to that example that you were talking <laughs> where they say, look, two weeks after 9-11, none of these bad things are going to happen. But precisely because they're using the tech out of a paranoid fear, because, precisely because they're reassessing the internet paranoid from a paranoid position, and precisely because they're some of the only institutions that have the capacity to restructure change and contest changes to the internet, what ends up happening? The very system they end up telling us that they're definitely not going to have happen, um, happens. 
Only the paranoid survive, as is such a weird quote for this fucking CEO of Intel to have written, Andy Grove. But I mean, you know, they are right. I mean, only the paranoid survive. Only the paranoid technologies get the funding, it seems like, right? Those are the ones that the government, that the state, they all crowd behind. They all pile behind trying to push for. The kind of dual side of paranoia is very interesting here, right? Because the both the the government is paranoid in in the sense that you know, as as Chan talks about, right? Like the you know Department of Homeland Security calls on us all, uh, demands that we all take everything seriously to report all suspicious events in persons, see something, say something, right? And as she puts it, this essentially endorses and spreads paranoia, the cost and efficacy of which remains to be seen. She goes on to say this generalized paranoia, which makes every citizen an eye and an ear for law enforcement, ignores the difference between possibility and probability. And almost no denial, especially by the accused, seems to shake paranoid convictions or rumors. Like, it's very interesting to see that kind of paranoia weaponized by the state um, and also exploited by the, the tech companies, right? That are like, you know, we, we're, we're going to sell you the goods um, to, to uh, enact this paranoid fantasy. But also at the same time, it's very interesting to see how paranoia creeps in in other ways uh, in terms of like, you know, she puts it right, trying to find the key words um, ahead of the event. Uh, in advance of it so that we know what we're looking for before it happens. And this is the paranoia of the, you know, the, the, the X-Files uh, red cork, you know, cork board and red thread, you know, it's the paranoia of trying to find connections. It's the paranoia of your, uh, of your, of your soft bank board with Masayoshi's son very at the very center of it. Ed. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, it's, you know, it's the paranoia that embeds within those who are also not trying to be eyes and ears for the, for law enforcement, see something, say something, but trying to be eyes and ears watching law enforcement, watching the state, watching the CIA, watching the FBI, the DHS, all these, uh, you know, and all, and all the other shadowy entities that we don't even have acronyms for. Uh, you know, it, it's very interesting to see this like very generalized paranoia um, that, that, that emerges and arises, right? And, and again, it's a dialectical relationship. You don't get one without the other. You don't have the paranoia of the state um, telling the, the public to be their eyes and ears without also having the paranoia of, you know, members of the public, uh, you know, drawing their conspiracies and keeping a close eye on all this. Uh, and, and, and I think, you know, Wendy Chun is not, not so much passing, you know, decrying one or the other. I mean, to a degree she is, but I think she's also raising a, a larger point about like that this is that paranoia is a kind of ubiquitous cultural affect, uh, you know, that, that then things like the internet and, and digital technologies and data tracking and packet sniffing, all, all that, all that kind of stuff also, uh, emerges out of, but also feeds into as well. I think a lot about those kind of like cultural affects where I think on the flip side of that, where you got paranoia, right? Paranoia is this sense of being over, like overly invested in what other people are doing or what they might be doing to you. But then at the, on the flip side of that, you also have an, you also see an apathy, right? That emerges out of like, on one hand, if it is true and we accept it to be true that there are unknown uh, organizations and entities collecting unknown information about you for unknown purposes, 
then on one hand, you can be paranoid about it. On the other hand, you can feel so powerless and helpless about it that you just become apathetic, right? Apathy is a self-defense mechanism, right? Like, what power do I have uh, to know who these people are, to know what they're doing, why they're doing it? Instead, way easier to just ignore it, way easier to just become apathetic to it. Um, and I think we see that a lot. And I think that is also, uh, you know, when, when, when you see the, the you know, when, when we saw the columnists and commentators and people, you know, not that long ago saying that millennials killed privacy, millennials don't care about privacy, Gen Z doesn't care about privacy, right? Uh, all, all of that stuff around the death of privacy, I think what they must, what they mistook for the death of privacy was actually the birth of apathy, right? It's not that people don't care about privacy. It's that they feel so, par that, that paranoia is exhausting, right? Being paranoid about your privacy is so exhausting. And what, what agency do you even feel like you have? So it's not the death of privacy. It's the birth of apathy as a self-defense mechanism for just surviving in this society. You know, as a result... It's an understandable position, and but but also one that like is fraught because there's a unholy alliance of uh, of actors ready to take advantage of that and weaponize it so that they be able to establish their own sort of authority from a, a position of paranoia, right? Mm. By taking advantage of the paranoia, by taking advantage of the need for more complete information, by taking advantage of you know. Um, by taking advantage of, you know, as, 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 uh, Chun talks about a little bit later, right? This paranoia can emerge from, per, from perception of weakness and authority figures or authority that is more, uh, more concrete or symbolic and talking a little bit about how from one example, right? Uh, one example is that, you know, paranoia stemming from knowledge of the rottenness at the core of power, namely that a performative imperative response endlessly repeated rights of institution lies at the heart of the, in, the legal system and every symbolic investiture. And so Schrebner's paranoia, Santer argues, Eric Santer, um, arises from a crisis of investiture, first from his failed election effort and section, second from his promotion to presiding judge of the Saxon Supreme Court. Bears testimony to usually repress relationship between the liberties and the disciplines. This paranoia does not respond to an overwhelming all-seeking power, but rather to a power found to be lacking, rod and inadequate, always decaying. Paranoid knowledge similarly responds to technology's vulnerabilities, even as it denies them, and paranoia increases as visibility decreases, right? And so, you know, this paranoia ends up having a series of effects, which make it, which also accelerate, it feels like its own expansion and the drive it has behind technology to be developed that tech, developing technology that surveils, developing messaging that convinces individuals to either surveil or not or escape surveillance, you know, commodifying that experience that we talked about at the top of the hour and convincing individuals to that they're unable to move in one way or the other, that the only way to move is in one way or the other because of the paranoia, because of the rivalry, because of the jealousy, jealousy, because of the displacement of the frustration that they might have with how things are and how they want them to be, and, or, and, or even the apathy that they might have about that situation. 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 situation.